Hi, I'm Awista Yub, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 10 new Class of 2021 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Adam Harris, a Class of 2021 National Fellow. Adam is a staff writer of The Atlantic, where he has covered education and national politics since 2018. He was previously a reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education, where he covered federal education policy and historically black colleges and universities. He is working on a book tentatively titled The State Must Provide, a narrative history of racial inequality in higher education and how the government is responsible for shaping it. The book will be published by ECHO, an imprint of HarperCollins. Adam, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. Thank you so much. Uh, so to start, can you just tell me a little bit more about the project and help that frame frame that for me before I jump into some questions? Absolutely. So essentially, this project is looking at how state and federal policy have helped shape the unequal higher education system that we recognize today. And more than shape it, um, also kind of prop it up over the last, you know, more than a century and a half. So, I mean, if you're looking kind of starting back to the, the foundation of, of our higher education infrastructure, at least the public higher, higher education infrastructure that we recognize today, um, you're thinking about things like the Murill Act, right, where Congress got together and, and they created these land-grant colleges that served pretty exclusively white students for the first 30 years of their existence. And then by the time that they, they rolled in the second Murill Act that helped support and create historically black colleges, those institutions received uh, far fewer dollars. But on top of that, the predominantly white institutions that, that had gotten the funding under the original Morrill Act also got funding under the second one. So, so if you kind of start from, from that initial disparity and then add on top of it um, institutionalized segregation, add on top of it kind of 60, 70 years of, of Jim Crow laws from, from the 1890 to, to 1965, and you start to, you know, get this picture of how the federal and state infrastructure is kind of propped up and an unequal higher education system and, and how along the way each step kind of rectify and address that inequality from affirmative action, from programs that, that might enhance uh, historically black colleges, how those those programs have kind of been stymied from the beginning. And so your book is tentatively titled The State Must Provide. Can you explain the rationale for that title? Yeah, so the state must provide actually comes from a court case, a Supreme Court case in the 1940s when Ada Louise Sippel Fisher, uh, who was a black student who had attended Langston University, the historically black college in Oklahoma, was applying for law school. Uh, the NAACP had supported her case to attend the University of Oklahoma School of Law. This would have been you know, one of the first, it would have been the first black student to attend a predominantly white college in, in Oklahoma, but this was also a precursor to Brown v. Board where they were trying to kind of open the doors of education uh, more broadly. So in the Supreme Court's decision, they essentially say the state must provide it to her as soon as they do it for any other student. Um, so and essentially it, it's the state must provide her an equal education. They have to provide that equality um, because they were so responsible and kind of fomenting it and then creating it. So you yourself attended an HBCU. You went to Alabama A&M. Can you talk about your experience having attended one and how your experience as a student then compares to the experience of students today who might be attending an HBCU? Yeah, I think my experience at 
uh, Alabama and m I, I had a fantastic experience at, at Alabama and m I it became sort of something of a family school. My uncle uh, was a drum major there. My mom went there. My sister was enrolled when, when I enrolled in college. So I had a network of people to kind of lean on when I was at and um, And also the faculty, of course, uh, kind of make it a robust experience. And that's actually been something that's that's tracked historically. Uh, as I mentioned, Ada Louise Sipple Fisher, when she was you know, a junior in college, her and a group of classmates wrote a letter to a state legislator and, and essentially said, you know, if you if you come to Langston, you'll you'll see what's going on. Our teachers are great, but we have we have soggy roads and and um, you know the, the green spaces won't dry and our buildings are old and our books are old. And I think that there's some of that uh, that that is kind of consistent today. Where we do get to have renovations, we may not get to have all of the renovations that we want. Where um, I think a, a kind of a formative experience for me was when I got to AM and I drove across town to the University of Alabama at Huntsville, which is the predominantly white institution in the city. I saw a completely different campus, right? If they had potholes, they'd been filled. Um, you know, the, the campus green was lush, the buildings were new and renovated. And, and this was an institution that was, was founded uh, you know, more than 60 years after Alabama A&M, um, nearly 100 years after Alabama A&M, uh, for that matter. But it was created so that the city or the, the state could abide by its segregation laws. Um, so, so just thinking about, the, I think what became kind of formative for me in, in my experiences at A&M was understanding the disparity between predominantly white institutions and, and historically black colleges while also understanding the value and, and what those institutions have provided. And I think kind of forecasting forward, I think there are a lot of the same issues that black college students on campuses today are facing. Um, when I went down to Mississippi Valley State University, when I go to Howard University, when I go to campuses across the nation, you know, when you talk to the students and, and they're, they're incredibly excited. They're, they're learning. They're happy to, to be in classrooms with the professors who take a nurturing and, and kind of um, vested interest in their success. But you can also kind of see where maybe there were some things that were neglected on campus or, or, or um, for one reason or another, they, they haven't been able to address them as, as holistically as they would if not for a century plus of discrimination. I mean, so to date, you've written a lot about higher education, both for the Chronicle of Higher Education and now with The Atlantic. So can you just talk more about how that became the focal point for your writing? What about that topic interests you and what are you hoping to achieve both as you continue your writing for The Atlantic, but also with this book? Yeah, I been kind of interested in education as a kind of way of understanding inequality. I think broadly, my, my interest is in understanding how inequality manifests and, and shows itself in, in different factors of society. And I think education is one of those things that everyone knows that there are issues and everyone knows that our education system from preschool through 12th grade and then on into college is unequal. But I think that really explaining to people and drawing out the why of the inequality feels like an important task. And it feels like, though people may understand at a surface level, I think that when you have a, a depth of knowledge of why, it encourages you um, to, to want to change that, to say, okay, I, I get why this is unequal and I, I know what needs to be done now. So I think that there's a piece of why I'm interested in education that's kind of simply to expose 
the ills that have created in the unequal structure that we recognize today. And I think that's the thing that more than anything that kind of keeps me keeps me coming back to, to education. And so with your book, what is it that you're hoping to change within that system? Yeah, I think the main thing that, that I'm hoping to, to change is that there's this thought that what we recognize today is something that's fundamentally different than what we saw in the 1960s. So to say that, yeah, well, you, you do have a significant share of Black students at prestigious University X, and you have a share of Black students at prestigious University Y. But I think if you're looking at places like the University of Michigan or the University of Texas or any number of these really prestigious institutions, you'll look and see that, oh, well, they only have 4% Black students here, and they only have 3% Black students there. And there is a reason for that. And I think that what I'm trying to, what I hope people will understand after reading this book is that the reason why these institutions continue to, to underserve um, Black, Latino, minority populations is because of this kind of years of policy that has built up this infrastructure that that performs in the way that it was designed to perform. And without significant government interaction with this system to, to fix it, it's going to stay the same. And, you know, I've had conversations with several politicians kind of talking generally about this theme. And um, one that actually kind of stuck out was from Senator Elizabeth Warren that said, public policy created the racial wealth gap, only public policy can fix it. And I think that's something that applies to education as well. Public policy created this unequal structure that we recognize. Only public policy can fix it. Hmm. No, that's a great, that's a great point. One point you did make in your application along those lines is you, you said that it's not really an unfortunate set of circumstances, but the result of intentional efforts by state and national lawmakers that have resulted in this inequality. Can you just talk through some of those efforts, either intentional or unintentional, but how it's led to this inequality that we see today? So one of the things that I always kind of go back to when I think about the intentionality of this unequal structure that we have and kind of the segregated higher education system that we have is the example of Berea College. It was the first integrated co-educational institution in the South. It was founded by a Presbyterian minister um, who, who rested on this idea that it was, it was you know, a verse from Acts, that God has made of one blood all people of the earth. And so he created this institution in Berea, Kentucky, that served both black and white students. It was roughly split down the middle in terms of how many black students, how many white students it enrolled. And there are a lot of different stories about the, the actual lore of how this, this bill came to pass. But in 1904, Carl Day, a legislator from Kentucky, essentially saw what was happening in Berea and proposed a law. The law became known as the Day Law, and it explicitly banned both public and private institutions from teaching black and white students on the same campus. And this happened across the country. You saw both black and white students kind of being formal, segregation laws kind of formally written into law in the 19, early 1900s. You saw it in Oklahoma, you saw it in Kentucky, you saw it in state after state. So with this day law, it was, it was a, as several people have told me, it's, it's kind of a really sinister law that says, you know, we're going to find you a sum that you cannot afford on a daily basis. And we're going to find individual teachers for teaching classes um, at a sum that they cannot afford. And then on top of that, you cannot operate a satellite campus within 25 miles of your original campus. And that essentially broke up this experiment 
of integrated education that had gone on for you know roughly 50 years at this point and really set back the progress that Berea made. Now, the state was already intentionally underfunding its predominantly Black college that it had established to essentially comply with Plessy v. Ferguson and kind of the, the idea of separate but equal. But now it's essentially also separating a private college. So, so not only was the state reaching in and saying, we want to do things with the public institutions, but this is also private institutions. And I think that outside of those individual laws, if you kind of look at court case after court case after court case, so um, if you're thinking of the Gaines case in the 30s, you're thinking of the uh, Fisher case in the, in the 40s, you're thinking Brown v. Board in the 50s, at each step, there were intentional efforts after the Supreme Court would rule, you have to admit this student. There were intentional efforts to keep people apart, to keep them locked into unequal situations and circumstances. In the case of Ada Louise Sippel Fisher, the Supreme Court ruled that the state must provide an equal education as soon as it does so for a white student. So instead of allowing Ms. Fisher to enroll at the University of Oklahoma School of Law, they rushed a law school into place in five days at the state capitol and they, they hired three professors that were working part-time and they said that this is an equal school and she should enroll here. Of course, she didn't uh, go and, and enroll at Langston because the argument is that how do you make a school equal that you rushed into operation in five days? How is that equal to something that's been in operation for 50 years, has established professors, has established campus, has established kind of course materials? That is not an equal education, but the state intentionally tried to pass it off as that. So those are just a couple examples of, of how the state kind of at stop after stop after stop kind of intentionally has put in measures to, to keep higher education unequal. So in an article you published in the Chronicle for Higher Education a few years ago, you mentioned uh, the Ayers case. It's one that might not be familiar to many people. Um, and one thing you said about that case specifically is that it's probably one of the most important court decisions that has been passed to address the issues of segregation and inequality in higher education today. So can you explain that case a bit more for those who might not be familiar with it? And then also how it relates to current day uh, decisions when it comes to higher education? Yeah. So the Ayers case was started in 1975 by a group that called themselves Black Mississippians for higher education. And the Black Mississippians were essentially a group that was cobbled together representing Black students at both HBCUs and predominantly white institutions. One of those students ends up being uh, now current U.S. Representative Benny Thompson. And so essentially what this group does is they sue the state of Mississippi, arguing that this state has not provided equal resources to its black colleges. Um, they've allowed the white institutions in the state to unnecessarily duplicate programs. And there was just kind of this range of factors, including SAT scores, that kept black students locked out of all of the resources in education that they would have otherwise been privy to. The case winds its way through the court for several decades before it lands at the Supreme Court in the early 1990s. And essentially what the Supreme Court does is they rule in favor of the Black Mississippians and say that, and establish some guidelines, some pretty, um, pretty clear guidelines for what a state must do to prove that it has eliminated all of the vestiges of racial discrimination in its higher education system. They send the decision back to the lower court so that they can kind of hash out how the state can um, deal with those guidelines, 
and they, they, they basically go back and forth for the next 10 years. At this point, it's been 25 years. Some of the original plaintiffs, including the person who the case is named for, Jake Ayers, have died. And they come to a point where they say, okay, maybe it's better to settle. You know, it's better to get something than to get nothing. And these cases can be kind of long, knock out, knock down, drag out fights. And so after 25 years, you have people who have gotten tired. And so they go to the bargaining table and they, they say, okay, $500 million over the course of 17 years, um, even though there have been estimates that said it would take up to $2 billion to begin to address some of these vestiges of discrimination. But, but they settled and they, they took the money. And what you've seen since that case was settled is how money alone does not solve some of these structural issues. And if it did, it would take a larger sum than that to solve some of these issues. So you have 500 million split between three colleges over 17 years, where the University of Mississippi can make $500 million in six years of private donations. So at a very base level, it's going to be difficult to, to kind of raise your institutions up to that, that same level. So at Jackson State, which is a comprehensive university, can become something equivalent to the University of, some, of Southern Mississippi um, in terms of it, the resources that it has and the, and the pool that it's able to draw on. And what this case kind of did was, there are a couple of things. One, it showed that if you settle, you can get out of federal government monitoring. The reason why the federal government isn't looking at Mississippi's higher education system, despite the fact that 99% of, of first-time, full-time white undergraduates go to the predominantly white institutions, despite the fact that the black enrollment has been dropping at the University of Mississippi, Mississippi State University, for year after year after year, despite those facts, the federal government isn't looking at this as a civil rights issue because the state settled, because they essentially fulfill their duty under, under the law. And, and you've seen those settlements in Mississippi, you saw it in Alabama, and now everyone's eyes are kind of turned to Maryland because it's the next place where there's the chance that they might settle their way out of this. And if they do, then that might keep the black colleges locked into this, this kind of unequal system. So I think at a very base level, I think what that case shows is that it's really hard um, to, to fight it at a piece-by-piece piece level, particularly when you don't have this kind of robust knowledge of, of how much the state did to create that unequal system. And I think what I'm hoping people understand from this book, and I think what I'm hoping that this book does in terms of changing this conversation and allowing um, so that when, when institutions go and say, hey, we have been locked out of this for years, and when their students say, hey, we've, been, we've kind of been locked into this system, that they have this to kind of draw on to say, this is why the system is like it is. And, and the court has said time and time again that the state has to address this discrepancy, which is clearly a factor of, of kind of this, this vestige of racial discrimination and centuries of segregation. Mm. And one thing you mentioned in your application that that might be necessary is actually reparations, the payment of reparations to HBCUs to account for this. So can you kind of explain what that would entail, particularly now given conversations around reparations in general uh, as a result of a lot of the, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement just more recently this year and, and just that conversation kind of taking the lead as a way to kind of address some of the inequalities that we see? 
Yeah, I think that there are a couple of ways that a sort of reparation style um, system could work for these institutions. Perhaps states could pool resources in terms of endowments from all of the colleges to kind of redistribute them in terms uh, in sort of an equitable fashion. I think that there, uh, at a federal level, there could be a greater investment in these institutions and their students. And I think one of the reasons why, of course, this black students are on campuses everywhere across the country. So I wouldn't want to just focus explicitly on HBCUs. And I think the, the book will essentially kind of make the case that, and, and, and this is a fact that the more black students that you have on campus, the fewer public dollars that, that you end up getting. It's, it's, it ends up being a correlation. So there are ways to kind of think about this in terms of how states are funding higher education in terms of, you know, maybe institutions that have more Pell eligible students. So um, low income students will get a little bit more of the state resources. Maybe um, maybe the institutions themselves, those that have benefited from things like slavery, thinking Georgetown, thinking Brown, thinking institutions like that, that have been kind of grappling with their, their histories and legacies of slavery and segregation. Maybe those institutions have some role to play in terms of helping the institutions that were sort of laboring in the background and, and uh, over the last century. So I think that there may be a role for those institutions to play. But, but more than anything, I think in the same way that HR 40 is designed to look at what reparations could look like broadly and, and what is actually owed, I think it would be constructive to do a similar exercise to say, what would a reparations program for this kind of institutionalized unequal system, what would that practically look like and, and how would we move forward with that? So I think that beyond any individual prescriptions for reparations for HBCUs or for the students that attend them, I think it's kind of more broadly beginning that conversation to, to say that, yes, these institutions do need recompense for the years that we have um, neglected them. There was a statement in your application where you said that critics of Black colleges often argue that the colleges bear the blame of their overwhelmingly Black student bodies. Can you just explain that argument and what that's even meant to accomplish? It's, it seems a bit counterintuitive and a little bit confusing, so I'd love to just kind of hear your feedback on that. Absolutely. So there has been a, a tendency of those who would critique Black colleges to say that, is there a need for historically Black colleges now? And I think what that statement is kind of getting at in terms of they kind of bear the blame for their majority black populations is essentially saying when people argue that there is not a need for HBCUs anymore because black students can attend any institution, um, that is neglecting the fact that despite the fact that HBCUs only make up 3% of four-year nonprofit colleges, that's where 80% of black judges, you know, 50% of black lawyers and doctors, um, 25% of Black STEM graduates, that's where they come from. And on top of that, um, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, if you're thinking about a place like the University of Mississippi or, or a state like, like Mississippi, where 99% of first-time, full-time white students attend the predominantly white institutions, HBCUs can only make the case. They can't force students to attend their institutions. They can only make the case that their institution is better. So to say that Black colleges have maybe outlived their usefulness, to say that Black colleges don't have the same 
um, the same role to play or, or have the same position. I think that, that what I'm getting at when I say that um, they, they're bearing the blame is because when critics argue that, well, why don't they just enroll more black students? They're neglecting the historical context. They're neglecting the centuries of neglect. They're neglecting the fact that 1964 wasn't an end-all be-all for racism and discrimination. And the fact that HBCUs have been fighting for, um, for equal resources, been fighting, been trying to create new programs that have been duplicated by predominantly white institutions that were put right down the road, in the case of places like Alabama and A&M and University of Alabama Huntsville, in the case of places like Mississippi Valley State and Delta State University, which you know, is, is about 30 minutes away from, from Mississippi Valley State. There have been instances time and time again of kind of this structural, these structural factors that have prevented HBCUs in growing the way that they, they may have otherwise. So when I say that they bear the brunt of, of the blame for this, that's kind of what I'm meaning. I'm, it's, it's kind of putting this all in a historical context that, that rebuts this idea that they've outlived their usefulness, but also that they haven't been trying. So this has been a very challenging year for many around the world. Uh, and the world where it stands today is very different from the world uh, than it was back in February when you applied to this program. So what gives you hope right now? <laughs> My kids, actually. You know, in, in conversations with, um, you know, college presidents or, or just people I've, I've talked to over the course of my reporting, everyone just does, they, they kind of try to look back on, on and, and hold on to things that they still can enjoy. And I think that the thing that kind of gives me joy and gives me hope and keeps me wanting to do this work is knowing that I have two little ones who are, who are coming up in this world and, and our job is to, even, even when the world is in a, a crazy place, our job is to make it a better place for them. So I think that's the thing that really gives me hope and, and keeps me going. And my final question, and the one almost every writer hates to answer, but where do you hope to be with your project a year from now? A year from now, I hope that my project is in a place to fundamentally change the conversation that we've been having over the last three decades about equity in education, understanding what affirmative action is and does, understanding the role of HBCUs, understanding how Black students have been locked into an unequal system of education from kind of student debt on down and kind of giving people a, a more robust knowledge of how the federal and state government has been responsible for that. So I think if my project is in that place a year from now, I will be happy. Great. Well, we look forward to supporting you this year. Thank you again for your time today, Adam. Thank you for listening to this interview. If you enjoy this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2021.